Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is May the 7th, and I have some good news for you. This show is not going to be about you-know-who, the T-word, the T-man. It's going to be about something else. We've moved on from Trump, or at least we think we've moved on from Donald Trump and fascism. Um, The headlines today are not about Trump. They're about other people. Uh, We hear that Facebook's Supreme Court sounds very Soviet, tells Mark Zuckerberg, looking at his most Molotov-like in a serious way, that he's the decider when it comes to whether or not Trump can reopen his, uh, uh, his, his Facebook account. We hear from NPR, the authority in liberal media, that the Facebook oversight board says that Facebook, not Trump, is the problem. So the story is not Trump. Um, uh, Recode tells us, here's how much people have stopped talking about Trump on Facebook and Twitter. Trump apparently used to be everywhere on social media. Now he's nowhere. Another word, of course, for nowhere is everywhere. Uh, Trump is, of course, everywhere. He remains everywhere. He remains that ghost in the closet, the thing at the back of our mind for the Bidens. Uh, He left himself on the the White House lawn. He is the headache. He's the thing that, of course, we need to exercise. And I I don't mean that in um, gymnastic terms. I mean it in terms of getting rid of the devil. Uh, The Washington Post tells us that the White House must exorcise the ghost of Stephen Miller. But perhaps a more powerful ghost than that of Stephen Miller is Donald Trump and his kind of fascism. So how are we going to address that? We have a wonderful new series of essays out, at least in paperback, on uh, ghosts, fascism, and Donald Trump by the very distinguished journalist uh, Natasha Leonard. The, um, the, uh, the title of her collection of essays just out in paperback from Verso is Being Numerous, Essays on Non-Fascist Life. Uh, Natasha, is the ghost of Donald Trump alive still? Do we need to exercise it? Um, Yes, I think certainly um, anyone who is paying attention to um, how policies and the kind of shape of politics around the country in particularly Republican-controlled states are seeing this, this haunting, this Trumpist haunting through you know the paranoia around the teaching of anti-racism in schools, um, this you know vast legislative assault on trans youth, everything that's really invested in what Trump was this kind of paradigmatic figure of. So white nationalist standing, demonization of the other, various types of heteropatriarchal chauvinisms, that kind of uh, Trumpism. Uh, permeates so much of of the current politic because also Trump himself was a kind of um, inhabiting a a much older ghost, right? The the foundational ghost of settler colonialism and and white supremacy that um, have always been part of of this this country and the West on the whole. 
Um, so, you know, to speak of the haunting that is Trump, I think, is to put it in a kind of discrete time frame. Um, and if we're going to deal uh, more properly with that kind of exorcism, it won't just be about uh, the Biden administration being anti-Trump as much as possible. It'll be about a, a much deeper dive into the sort of fascisms that both continue to permeate so much of, of how we live and were certainly the, the conditions under which Trump was able to ascend and has not yet been removed as a specter. Uh, Natasha, you say that um, Trump's tenure haunts every piece of your new collection. Um, is he the specter hanging over this book, this new collection, or the book uh, came out last year, the collection now in paperback, being numerous? Well, I mean, interestingly, kind of uh, no, right? In a sense, he's an unavoidable arc because so much of how we thought about um, the kind of politics and the, the fight in which we, we on the if, uh, kind of left, as I assign myself, anti-fascist, anti-racist left, um, we're kind of forced to orient a politics against this, this very emboldened white supremacy that was uh, Trumpism. But um, I think the, the arc connecting these kind of aleatory essays in my book is more about the failure of centrist liberalism to answer the, the question of, of Trump and the kind of the haunting of, uh, you know, uh, unchallenged enlightenment assumptions that, that don't take account of some of the drives from kind of colonialism onto capitalism, onto fascism and those interconnections. So to say it's a kind of ghost of Trump is more that he was an unavoidable fact of anyone writing politically in the last, um, you know, since 2015 at least. Um, but, you know, the, 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 the sector that goes unaddressed and is often considered more of an angel um, would be the liberal centrism and uh, kind of late capitalism that without which we wouldn't have been able to have a Trump or the preceding Tea Party um, and the kind of far right that we see now. Uh, Natasha, as you know better than I do, the, um, the tradition of writing about um, dead generations weighing like a nightmare on the brains of the living is an old leftist trope. Um, Marx, I don't know if he invented it, but he certainly popularized it in his wonderful essay, The 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte, when he was writing, I guess, about early capitalism, if you're writing about late capitalism. Uh, how much of your book is in that Marxist critique of uncovering the real operation of capitalism? I mean, I, I hope some, I mean, certainly like uh, I am uh, committed to the sort of historical materialism that um, Marx's project was the kind of uh, most probably glorious analytic example of, which is to say, and narrative, uh, Nasha. Let's, right, uh, Natasha, and let's and not forget Martin the narrative. Writer than um, I could ever be. So, you know, to be like, I'm in the legacy of Marx would be you know, a large claim. And so, uh, but more certainly inspired by and invested in, yeah, like um, picking apart the undergirding mechanisms uh, by which we live and by which uh, we kind of, the, the hierarchies that, that whisper through 
habits, traditions, um, and you know, more formal institutional structures and establishments. Um, but you know, uh, that tradition, uh, you know, a lot of my writing is not like kind of, I'm not a Marxologist in any, any sort of formal way, um, but just want to pay attention to how materiality um, within history, the contingencies of history and materialism are so important to pay attention to when people often are in a kind of unthinking liberalism, thinking in terms of a historical universalisms that, you know, when thinking historically, uh, quite clearly don't seem to apply. But, you know, I also try and rely on, um, you know, thinkers like uh, Akilima Mbembe, who talks about necropolitics, um, which is the kind of governance over life towards death, a, a life mm, on the... You're, you're certainly, there's a lot of... There are a lot of corpses in your book. Uh, one of the chapters entitled Looking at Corpses. Uh, another of the chapters is on suicide. In a way, it's a kind of detective story, isn't it? Um, are you, are, are you mean, the corpse or I, are you the detective? You're not quite sure, I think, sometimes. I'm not course. sure. I think, that's the th I think that's part of um, a kind of interesting exploration of, you know, any writer thinking, thinking and situating themselves in a certain politics and political moment like the idea that i would be some sort of detective as observer um i should also note that you know a lot of this this book is 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 abolitionist as it comes to, so i would like to think of myself not as a cop in any way but part of uh you know anti-fascist efforts and living are about interrogating the kind of authorities and hierarchies that we do ourselves embody and uphold, um, not in terms of just working, you know, work on yourself in this sort of individualist Instagram wellness way, but interrogating um, the, yeah, the kind of assumptions and traditions and forms of life, to borrow from another great philosopher, Wittgenstein, um, that inform how we get to live, who gets to be um, considered to matter, and a kind of political agent and in which ways. So I suppose that is detective work where we're all perpetrators in different levels. Some, you know, some political subjects more perpetrator uh, historically and oppressor than, than others, certainly. Um, but yeah, I hope it's not uh, detective work in a sense that I, I don't, as you say, consider myself like outside of this crime scene <laughs> that is the now. Well, you write wonderfully about ghosts. You say, this ghost is formless, a shadow that seems to peer back, an aspect that shifts when you look back twice, a displacer of air in the room. I feared him for as long as I've disbelieved in his broader kind. That's a description of a ghost you grew up with in North London, but seems to sort of permeate a lot of the book. Uh, your journalism, though, um, uh, Natasha, is much more materialistic a lot of people know you as 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 the journalist who argued very strongly that the neo-Nazi Richard Spencer got exactly what he deserved. He got punched in the face uh, back in 2017. Uh, you also write for the Intercept. I think you're a, you're a contributing editor. Uh, lots of excellent stuff about Facebook and the violence of January 20, uh, uh, 2021. Uh, but when it comes to ghosts, Natasha, you can't punch a ghost. Richard Spencer was real and he got deservedly slapped in the face. 
how do we fight ghosts? Well, you know, I think, like, you know, as you point out, I, I kind of uh, write on different registers in different venues as makes sense. So if I'm doing a kind of intercept column, even though I try and, you know, wouldn't wouldn't shy away, I think it's important to talk about, um, you know, political ideas philosophically. I don't think that should be avoided and readers are smart and, um, you know. And, you vice, and vice versa, right? Right, and so when I, but in something like the, the ghost essay, which was much more of a kind of, um, my background's also in philosophy before I started doing political journalism, um, was much more of a kind of philosophical explanation, but I think the ethics come in, political ethics come in um, where, if you're thinking about ghosts, like the ghost that I do and don't believe in that lives in my childhood bathroom, the whole idea there is there is a kind of political imperative to challenge the kind of categories um, that the sort of ontologies that are presented to us. There is a, a kind of political imperative to believe and disbelieve uh, differently and challengingly. And I think that is a lot of work of a kind of um, leftist horizon to challenge some of the most um, kind of presumed posits of the now. Um, so, you know, is that something uh, to fight or embrace and think otherwise? Um, sure. Uh, in terms of what kind of hauntings we have, you can only ever fight like a, a haunting in the now and its material uh, presentation. So if if we want to as a point of metaphor rather than like para-ontological experiment. Think about, uh, you know, Richard Spencer as like carrying the ghosts of uh, the, the kind of sui generis American fascist past and European fascist past. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think that then you have to uh, fight them head on in a way that actually seems to work and yeah and uh, some of the book is uh qu quite a personal attempt i think for you to fit your lineage your family into that anti-fascist struggle you have this wonderful um uh wonderful description of vis visiting your elderly grandfather in southern spain after seeing some neo-nazis in um in in berlin recently uh, you say you write. He's a, a British expat with a vast repertoire of embellished anecdotes, a purpling tan, and the occasional reactionary bent. Once at lunch, I asked him, "Do you think it's okay to punch neo-Nazis?" And of course, he responds, "Yes," because he seems to have been part of the the literal fight against uh, the Nazi Party in in in. Uh, in mid-century uh, the East End of England. So this is more than just ontology, your book. It's a book about resistance to fascism, isn't it? Right, which I think includes, uh, like, you know, challenging certain philosophical posits, but also, yes, on-the-ground resistance. Um, and, you know, it's, it's unverified about whether my grandfather was indeed part of this uh, very, very important historical uh constellation the 43 group who in as historical anti-fascist fighters are lauded and celebrated um but you know they they were um former uh servicemen uh back in london after the war jewish servicemen who saw the rise of mosley's fascists in the streets again and were like absolutely not and beat the absolute crap out of them their um their slogan was basically maim not kill 
And it really did beat the fascists who were organizing in, in the public space um, and through their own networks back. And I think, you know, when I advocate for, or at least defend um, similar confrontational action on the part of uh, anti-fascists today, the point is that, um, you know, the idea of that is to create very grave consequences for fascist organizing rather than the legitimating act of debate, um, which again presumes that, that what kind of fascist speech is interested in is some sort of exchange of ideas in the marketplace of ideas that we can triumph over with truth and you know shedding light on as disinfectant. Um, I think that's sort of provably not been true. And it um, overlooks the fact that, you know, neo-Nazis, uh, white supremacists gathering in public aren't just saying, I believe the world is this way, they're organizing. And they're creating affinities of desire and oppression and um, authoritarian desires being in enabled collectively. So I think it's, you know, imperative to break up those collectives in whatever way possible. And that can be either kind of the work of reporting them online and revealing who they are. So it's, uh, you know, they can't just work in the shadows and then also just kind of direct confrontation and uh, yeah, a, a no platforming, uh, which is what I agree with. So yeah, and obviously, you know, it's, it's controversial because, you know, you start, which is funny because, you know, people would say, I have no problem with punching Nazis, but when it actually happens uh, in, the, in this day, um, some funny questions in the chat. Um, uh, you know, uh, in this day and age, people uh, recoil and say, you're, you're just as bad as them because of a punch rather than, you know, the reason I dislike neo-Nazis and uh, modern day white supremacists is because they have a genocidal agenda. It's not because they throw a punch or two. Um, mm. it's, it's the, the agenda. So I think uh, when the fact of basic property damage or you know, a, a trash can on fire or a punched Nazi makes people decry um, as just as fascistic, a movement that is trying to disrupt, um, yeah, a genocidal agenda. Um, you know, it's it's somewhat baffling to me, but you know, I think we are quite, um, yeah, I did a brainwashed into what is seen as violence um, rather than a kind of more structural understanding of violent ideology um and yeah i guess ghosts of historic violence still the ghosts of historic violence i think the book is as much about the ghosts of fascism broadly as as just donald trump um i would have while i was reading the book i was thinking maybe i should rename natasha the ghostbuster but of course that moniker has already been taken uh, <laughs> and you seem to be rather uh, ambivalent about Ghostbusters. Um, you write in the book, you're talking about uh, uh, atheists, what you call the new atheists, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, who's dead now, Sam Harris. You call them the worst of all Ghostbusters. Um, what is a leftist Ghostbuster? How do they go about their work in contrast with a Dawkins a Hitch, or a Hitchens? Well, I think certainly, like my my particular problem with thinkers like that, um, aside from, you know, they're quite marked racism in many cases, um, is that um, they use this understanding of, of enlightenment science 
as uh, a kind of the, the idea that there is only kind of one understanding of truth, which is actually very unscientific, like no, no physicists think this way. Um, so it's actually just a kind of very small minded way of thinking about how we choose to understand and break up the world. And you see the harm of that kind of thinking, uh, like right now, like especially in the UK and increasingly here, um, people call upon a, the complete misunderstanding of scientific taxonomies and say, there are only two sexes, therefore trans people uh, are a kind of threat to science, which you know no endocrinologist would agree with. Um, but it is this, you know, you see the risk of this kind of small-minded, um, quite unempirical empiricism, which, um, you know, no philosopher of science would stand for, but yet these people gain this, um, these like logic boys gain this following as, as the most reasonable. And I think a lot of that kind of capital R reason TM crowd um, use this kind of, uh, you know, this kind of rhetoric um to guise a lot of uh bigotry and yeah and this um this focus on on what you call the numerous uh explains the title of the book it's um taken from a a a, a quote from a a poet called opa opa how do you pronounce it open Open is george open yeah george open uh where he wrote obsessed bewildered by the shipwreck of the singular we have chosen the meaning of being numerous. But what is progressive about being numerous? Could some people suggest that the that numerous is also liable of reversing us back into a kind of relativistic world where there are no truths, no um, utopias, no class conflict, none of the leftist stuff that some people cherish? Well, I, I cherish class struggle too. I think the mistake, um, which is a which is a common one, is presuming that um, is collapsing materialism and relativism. Um, so you know, the uh, philosopher Donna Haraway makes the point about scientific posits, all of them being made but not made up. Um, so, and that's just true of of how we break up the world and talk. It doesn't mean we can't have consensus reality and truth. It doesn't mean we collapse into either like moral or epistemological relativism. It actually means we have to be fiercer materialists and pay much fiercer attention to the kind of consensus realities that um, get allowed to pass. Um, So I think that that philosophically is that kind of work. And then in terms of being numerous, uh, and it's a wonderful poem. Uh, So uh, of being numerous is the poem. So I recommend. Uh, reading the whole thing but I think that one of the crucial things um, about being numerous as a concept and it plays out in the book is that it's actually not necessarily progressive or reactionary there's nothing kind of inherent in its political valence um, and that's why I like the open line specifically about choosing the meaning of being numerous because a lot of the meaning of being numerous today um, as I think you were pointing to is is atomized and individualistic and uh, enumerated and quantified in often quite authoritarian um, and exclusionary ways, let alone talking about, you know, techno-capital surveillance. Right. Um, and, and you get onto that uh, after the, the, the section on, but you say um, that he was um, hinting at totalized surveillance. That leads us back, of course, to Facebook. 
and the kind of surveillance capitalism that you're critiquing in the book. We've had many shows about this, including with Shoshana Zuboff, who sort of who's invented the term surveillance capitalism. Um, you introduced me also in the book to, I didn't know about him, but he sounds fascinating, Paul Virilio, uh, and here, a, 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 a French theorist, less well-known than Foucault, um, who has uh, a theory of technology that you see as being central, perhaps behind today's fascism. Tell me about Virilio. Why is he so important in your mind? Um, so sadly, the, the late, great Virilio, but he lived to a ripe old age. Um, I just think this he presents this idea of the accident that I find um, uh, when he's talking about the acceleration of technology, but I think it can be applied more broadly, and, and it's, it's just a useful concept. And by accident, he doesn't mean mistake um, or, you know, aberration. He specifically means that um, when we introduce new technological aspects, um, and I would argue also certain aspects of what we would call uh, progress politically, we have to be attuned to also bringing with them Anility of types of accident. It's easier to explain with example as the the um, uh, a passage you highlight. So you know, invent the ship, invent the shipwreck. You don't necessarily determine exactly mm. when and how. Right, you, uh, and you're quoting him. You say, when you invent the plane, you also invent the plane crash, and when you invent electricity, you invent electrocution, which is fascinating to me. Right. And I think it's one of those things. It's not saying, therefore, don't invent these things. It's saying be attentive to the new possibilities of the accidents that are already baked into any given advancement. And it doesn't mean they're not, therefore, things we want or have to be. But, you know, I think climate disaster is a perfect example of that. Right. Like um, it wasn't an aberration of, you know, humanity's process of, of decimation and extraction, um, it was baked into it. Maybe people couldn't have seen that at the time and were more invested in other kinds of violences to enable the growth of capitalism. Um, but, you know, I think we, it is beholden on those of us who care about the world. Um, we have to be attentive to the political accidents and the, um, you know, technological accidents that we do invite. And so think more interestingly and more committedly with an ethics, a kind of expansive and um, horizontal and, uh, you know, anti-fascist ethic about how we might be numerous differently and more supportively and interdependently and in a flourishing way. Um, but yeah, so I think that that idea of the accident, I just find helpful. It was also kind of occurred to me as uh, crash, yeah. I think that uh, Virilio got described, at least in the uh, the Wikipedia piece I read on him, as the uh, the French version of Ballard. So uh, I'm not sure if he's a science fiction writer, but there's a certain similarity there. You also talk, um, Natasha, in the book about something you call the Californian ideology, um, the, inter the, 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 the dream, and again, nightmare, dream, ghost, blah, blah, that the internet would be a democratizing force of decentralized power and knowledge. You don't write the internet off entirely in the book. We're living increasingly in a digital world. Do you think that the digital revolution can help us finally nail the ghost of fascism? Put it no, to bed not, forever? Not, not, I mean, not no given uh, 
apparatus can. Like that's not how apparati work, right? Like the internet is, um, you know, obviously what is what is dangerous about the way our current internet is set up is that, you know, a tiny, tiny amount of companies uh, own the like vast means of production and uh, more data than any data has existed in the world is in, uh, you know, a, a handful of billionaires hands. That's that's in need of, uh, you know, democratizing and worker control and rethinking. But the internet itself is not, uh, it's an apparatus. It's not necessarily, uh, you know, progressive or reactionary. It is the kind of terrain uh, by which we enact our like conversations, intimacies, work, all kinds of things. So it's like asking if a city is progressive or not, like it depends what happens in it and how you design it and how you challenge its its architectures if they do seem to be being oppressive, you know. Well, being numerous essays on the non-fascist life is certainly, as you can tell from this conversation, uh, incredibly numerous uh, essays about everything from uh, Natasha's grandfather in Spain to Donald Trump, of course, the spirit or the ghost behind the work, to the internet, to many French theorists. We haven't even talked about Foucault. Maybe another time, uh, Natasha, we can talk about Foucault um, and, and many other uh, French theorists. I want to congratulate you on the book. It's really a wonderful read, personal, philosophical, political, certainly very radical. Uh, it's just out in paperback. Everyone needs to read it. Um, I know you're stuck, if that's the right word, in Brooklyn at the moment, uh, Natasha. In addition to being numerous, what else should people be reading in these strange times? How are we going to get rid of our ghosts? Okay, so I think a really important one is considering the, the a lot of the, the current hauntings are white supremacist. Um, this is not a new book. The Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar-Artis. Um, mm. If we need to, you know, a lot of overlooked histories of, you know, the history of settler colonialism and uh, indigenous mm. frameworks. Hold that one up again, because I, 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 do, do you know the author and the author? No, I mean, she's, she's a much older academic historian. So wow. um, here, oh God, I'm so bad with these cameras. Roxanne, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. Dunbar I hadn't seen that book. It looks really interesting. Yeah, and she was right. For, she was friends with Howard Zinn, and he wrote the People's History of the United States. And she was like, "Well, actually, something is missing here." Um, and so that's a really important book. Um, I'm also really enjoying this new book by uh, a friend of mine, journalist Katie Engelhart. It's called The Inevitable, and it is a in-depth reported both, um, you know, it, it very intimately reported, but philosophically informed um, set of, of like, a well, it's a book, but a collection of fascinating chapters about the idea of the right to die and uh, physician-assisted death, the laws, the limit of the laws around thinking about this kind of thing, really fascinating. So that's a, that's a recommendation. Well, Natasha, thanks again. Wonderful uh, conversation. And I look forward to having you back on the show again where we can talk more about uh, corpses. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you.